Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad to see you here today. Busy day today, right? I mean, it's the Super Bowl, right? I mean, the world is preoccupied with this. At least America is preoccupied with it. Maybe you're more preoccupied with uh, what wings you're going to have today. Or it strikes me that America is consumed with the fact, will Taylor Swift make it back from Japan in time? Right? We, 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 we laugh about that. And think about the conscience of America, what they think about. And then think about what God thinks about. You know what God thinks about? His grace to you and I. He's consumed with His own glory. And out of that glory is His grace for you and I. God's thoughts are for you. What an incredible thing that God thinks about me. His thoughts are directed towards His children. That's essentially the message of 1 Peter. We're going to begin a study in 1 Peter. I would ask you to stand with me as we pray. We're going to read some verses from 1 Peter, and we'll do an introduction into the book of 1 Peter. Let's stand, let's pray, and ask God's favor. Father, again, we've asked you to speak to us. We sang it. We sang a prayer to you. And we thank you, Lord God, that your word tells us that if we ask anything according to your will that it will be granted to us. It is your will that your word would be planted deep in us, that it would bear fruit, that the heart and the stony ground would be broken, that we would realize that there is nowhere else we can go because you alone have the words of life. But the most important thing for us to see is Christ. And we thank you, Lord, already You're going to answer that prayer. So show us Christ. The Holy Spirit guide and direct us into all truth this day. That He would make known to us our great Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So word of the Lord for us today, you may be seated, may He add His blessing to it. As we do an introduction to Peter, we'll do the normal things, who's the author, time, date, and all those things are important because it is a book that is historical. Peter authored authored the epistle that bears his name. Peter mentions Babylon in his book. He writes in 1 Peter 5.13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Mark, he's talking about the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark was Peter's amanuensis or secretary, and most scholars would say that it was actually Peter who wrote Mark, not Mark. Mark just dictated what Peter wrote. 
But Peter mentions Babylon, and most some would say, well, that's where he wrote it from. Peter actually wrote from Rome. And so when he says Babylon, you can equate that to Rome. The date of the writing of the book of 1 Peter is uh, just before Rome was burned, and Nero blamed that upon the Christians and therefore began to persecute Christians. So the dating of the book is around 62 to 64 A.D. A very succinct, a succinct outline of 1 Peter would be, uh, the one I, I like is from John MacArthur. If you wanted to break down 1 Peter into three categories, it would be this. Suffering Christians should remember their great salvations, chapter 1 to 2.10. Suffering Christians should remember their example before men, 2.11 to 4.6. Suffering Christians should remember their Lord will return, 4.7 to 5.11. Uh, just by way of reminder, you can get these notes on our website one, uh, probably sometime late Monday afternoon. But today, as we're introduced to the epistle of 1 Peter, we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at the argument, we're going to look at the apostle, we're going to look at the audience, and then we're going to look at the acknowledgement. First, the argument. And what do I mean by argument? Well, I had to find a word that goes with theme, right? I had all A's, and, and, and of course I go to Google and synonyms for uh, theme. And argument was one of them, right? Making a point. What I mean is the theme of 1 Peter. What is the message that Peter wants to convey to his audience, and by extension, you and I also, if we're God's children? John MacArthur, again, in his commentary, writes this, and I think he's spot on. Peter wanted his readers to live triumphantly in the midst of hostility, without abandoning hope, becoming bitter, losing faith in Christ, or forgetting His second coming. Peter wanted his readers to live triumphantly in the midst of hostility, without abandoning hope, becoming bitter, losing faith in Christ, or forgetting His second coming. That is spot-on assessment of the book of 1 Peter. The major themes of Peter are grace and suffering. Grace and suffering. When Peter speaks of grace, he speaks of the grace of God, the God who gives grace to his people, the God who saves his people. The word grace we know is charis. It means a favorable attitude towards someone or something, favor or goodwill, or perhaps you've had it uh, defined as unmerited favor, right? I got favor that I did not earn. We sang this morning, empty-handed I come, right? We come to God empty-handed because there's nothing I can bring to God. What can I give to God that God says, I need this? Or I'll give you something in exchange for this. I bring nothing. As R.C. Sproul says, the only thing we bring to God is the sin which put Him on the cross. That's the only thing we bring to God. And he takes it and he removes it from us. Thanks be to God. The word grace is found eight times in the letter. There's all the references for you. Peter begins and ends his epistle with an appeal to grace. As we read this morning in verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. At the end of the letter, he writes this in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Grace is the major theme of Peter, along with suffering. Grace and suffering. The word suffering is pasco. It means to suffer, to be afflicted by something from without That's key. It's from without. It's an outside act to be acted upon to undergo an experience. And the word suffering is found 12 times in Peter, four more times than the word grace. But I would submit to you that grace is the major theme of the book of 1 Peter. And when Peter talks about suffering, it is the suffering that comes from being a Christian. It is suffering that is for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not suffering because I have an illness or because I was foolish. It is suffering as a direct result of being a Christian and refusing to change course, refusing to compromise to the culture. You know, there is a difference between suffering in the Lord and suffering for the Lord in the Lord, and for the Lord. Suffering in the Lord is when various trials of life come that are not a result of being a Christian. An illness, a long illness, you learn how to suffer in the Lord. You suffer for the Lord when suffering is directly related to being a follower of Jesus Christ. When this type of suffering comes, you do suffer both for and in the Lord. When we suffer for the Lord, or in the Lord, we must view our suffering in light of God's great grace. That's what Peter writes to his audience. In 1 Peter 4, 2, 4, 12 to 13, he writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary, writes this, The suffering of the churches is an inevitable result of their new life, but not the core of that life. Suffering of the churches, the church of Jesus Christ is going to suffer. It's the result of their new life, but it is not the core of our new life. What is the core of the life of God's church? It's the grace of God. The grace of God. So we're going to see how suffering and grace, or grace and suffering, mesh together within the book of 1 Peter. Let's look now at the apostle. We saw the argument, grace and suffering, to learn how to suffer in light of God's grace. 
Let's look now at the apostle. In 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as you know, changed Simon's name to Peter. He used to be called Simon. Remember, it says this in Luke 6.14, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew. When did Peter, when did Jesus change Peter's name? Remember, Jesus was asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, you're a prophet, and you're this, and you're that, and what that. Then he says, okay, but who do you say? Jesus got right down to the matter. This is what they say, but what do you say? Who do you say? That is a great question for us. Who do we say that Jesus is? Not just that we can have an intellectual knowledge of who he is. We can, we can spit back a Sunday school answer, but when he says, who do you say that I am? He's really saying, who, in the deepest recesses of your heart, who do you believe that I am? That's what Jesus means by that question. And we know that Peter replied, replied correctly. Look what it says in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Simon Barjona means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Here's where he changed his name. And on this rock, which rock? Not Peter. Peter is not the rock. He's not the first pope. I tell you, on this rock, what rock? That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle, apostolos, a special messenger of Jesus Christ. He belonged to a restricted group. There was a restricted group who were called apostles. They were given very gifts. They were, to, they were the ones who began the church. Peter, we know, was one of the 12 apostles. And out of the 12, he was one of the inner three that was closest to Jesus. Peter, James, and John. We know that Peter at times was impetuous. He was quick to speak and act at times. I can certainly relate to that. You probably can too. He quickly told Jesus that he would follow Jesus to his very death. But when Jesus talked about his own death, Peter told him to stop talking about it. It was right after Jesus, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. I'm going to die. And he says, no, this is not going to happen. And then Jesus said, you are the, you are, <laughs> on this rock I'll build my church. And then he calls them, get away from me, Satan. How quickly things can turn, even out of a good will. Peter quickly pulled out a sword to defend Jesus, cutting off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. 
Peter denied that he even knew Jesus when his life was online. I will go with you to the death. I'm willing to die for you. But when it became that it might be, I do not know who this man is, such to the point that he called down curses upon himself. Peter was also struck with great grief over his sins, the Bible tells us. Peter was the man that Jesus chose to preach the first sermon of the church age where God called 3,000 souls to himself. Can you imagine that? Your first sermon ever. You attended the greatest seminary ever. You walked with Jesus for three years. And now it's go time. And as soon as you do, 3,000 people came to faith. Peter many don't know, was the first apostle to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It was not Paul. It was Peter. Where is Peter now? Peter is sitting on one of the 24 thrones that are around God's, God's throne in heaven because Jesus said, I have allotted 12 thrones to the apostles. Peter was, Peter was a man chosen by God himself. And Peter writes to his audience from having experienced the power of God working in and through him. From the experience of himself being persecuted. He was writing out of a heart of knowing what it is to fail and to be restored. He is writing from a heart that knows what it is to receive the grace of God. This is the apostle. And this is the audience into which he is writing. The audience. Again, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. A map is going to come up there, and it's going to show you the region in which these people lived. Uh, well, there used to be a red line around it, but it's this upper area right here, a large area. He writes to them. He writes to the elect exiles. Elect exiles. Those are words that are obviously purposely chosen by Peter because they were given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The word elect, electos, chosen, Picked out, selected. Oh, pastor, I know where you're going now. You better believe you know where I'm going now. I know you know where I'm going now because I know I hope you believe the same thing. We were in Bible study Wednesday night. We talked about the sovereignty of God and Stephen Lawson said, and now we get to the P word, predestination. God's choosing of his saints. It's a doctrine that has divided people for centuries. It should not because it's clearly listed out in God's Word. It's a clear doctrine of God's Word. See, Peter understood the concept of being chosen, of being picked out, of being selected by God because Jesus chose him specifically and he chose the rest of the apostles. Isn't that what Jesus told them? In John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, Peter, in using the word elect, is reminding his audience that they also were chosen by God. That God in His grace chose them even before the world was created. And some people bristle at that. I did when I was first introduced to the Reformed theology. I was angry at the fact that God would choose some and not others. It made me very angry. I flipped over the desk and walked out of class. I was beyond angry at it. I began to study for myself for a year, I would look at the Scriptures and look at the Scriptures and look at the Scriptures, and finally it dawned on me. God is in charge of salvation, not me. God gets to choose whosoever will come to Him. And Peter is reminding his audience, it's a word that just oozes the goodness and the grace and all that God is to the elect. Yeah. I'm God's special child. Word of comfort right off the bat in the midst of their suffering. He's reminding them of what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Remember, we got to go back a ways. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What? Even as He chose us in Him that is in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. We sang this morning, He will hold me fast. You know what it means to be elect? It means that Christ will hold you fast. Hold you fast means I will never let you go. I will see you through to the very end. What great security we have in our God. I will see you through to the end. God in His amazing grace not only chose them for salvation, but also to be exiles in this present world. They're the elect exiles. Exiles. Paradimos. Stranger. A person who for a period of time lives in a place which is not his normal residence. Alien, stranger, temporary resident. That's what it means to be an exile. The word exile here, by the way, is found twice in Peter and once in the book of Hebrews. Three times in Scripture is that word found. Hebrews 11.13 writes this. It's, it's the book of faith, the, 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 the great hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, they realized this about themselves because they were in Christ, that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. Do we view ourselves as a stranger here on earth? Does it feel uncomfortable to live in a culture such as ours? It should. This is something's wrong here. It should cause me to long for my home. No, I live at 36 wherever. I live 
put your address wherever. That's where you live. No, that's where you temporarily live. Your home is in heaven. Jesus says, I go and I prepare a place for you. There's a special place for God's children in heaven. A, 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 an address that will never, ever, ever change. And an address in which everything you could possibly need will always be there. There will never be a sense of lack in heaven. Nothing but fullness and fulfillment. The joy of His presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And you get the point forever. He has that for His children. That's what it means to be an elect exile. That I have a home. There's a mansion for me in glory, the song says, right? I don't know if there's a mansion. Be honest, the way God is, a mansion seems kind of low, doesn't it? Be honest, and now we're not there for the good stuff. What's going to be there is the full glory of Jesus Christ. What is better than that? Do we think in such ways? He's telling his audience, think this way. Think this way. You are in the midst of suffering, persecution. Think that you are only here for a little while. You are but a stranger, an alien, an exile here on earth. Peter goes on to say in verse 13 of chapter 1 this about their thinking. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You ever think about heaven? I would encourage you to read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It's a great book. You ever set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? How easily we set our minds on the temporary. We have to deal with it. When real hardship comes, I'm thinking just at this moment, but God's Word tells us you have to deal with the moment, but deal with the moment in light of setting your hope on the grace that is to be given to you. To know that this is just a transition period. Isn't that so hard to do, loved ones? When you're suffering for so long, when hardship is just one after the other and it doesn't seem to end, do we set our hope fully to know that, you know what, soon and very soon I'm going to see the king. This is not our home. But while we live here, we're to live with our hope set fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He writes that they were the elect exiles of the dispersion. Dispersion, dispora. We mean scattering. Is Peter referring here to the Jews who were dispersed in the Old Testament from, the, from Assyria and Babylon and scattered throughout the world? If he is, then his audience would be Jewish believers. But however, Peter's not writing just to Jewish believers. He's writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers. The term exiles of the dispersion is a word picture of the church which consists of both Jews and Gentile believers. David Helm in his commentary writes this, For Peter then, and this is most important, 
the phrase exiles of the dispersion depicts the normative state of any follower of Jesus so long as he or she remains in the world. Exiles of the dispersion. The elect exiles of dispersion. That is the normative state of any follower of Jesus so long as he or she remains in the world. We are but aliens and strangers, sojourners. If you want to get an understanding and a picture of that, read Pilgrim's Progress. Read Pilgrim's, or watch Pilgrim's Progress. The animated version is great, actually. Where Christian is on a journey to the celestial city. This is the audience to whom Peter writes. And then we see the acknowledgement. We see the acknowledgement. Peter acknowledges why they are, why they are elect exiles. Look what it says in, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. They are, and you and I are, elect exiles because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge. Prognosis. To know beforehand, to know about something, something prior, to know about something prior to some temporal reference point. Foreknowledge here, in case you've ever encountered the belief, or maybe you believe that or have been taught this, foreknowledge in the Bible does not mean that God looks down the corridor of time and He sees the choice that you would make to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And based on your choice, He elects you. That is a doctrine from the pit of hell. That is a doctrine that says you're in charge of your salvation. That God responds to you or to me. God responds to no one. God is not answerable to anyone. All mankind is accountable to God. He is the one who searches the hearts and the minds and of whom we are laid naked and bare and of whom we must give an account. That is why sharing the gospel is so important because everybody is going to stand before God and they're going to be asked, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? If they've never heard, it's not your fault because the sun, the trees, the sky, the birds, your dog, nature itself, is enough to point us to Jesus. It's not enough for salvation, but it is enough to point us to Jesus Christ, to cause a heart to seek after God. We need to be ones who, who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is the only way that people are saved. And if they are God's chosen, then when God's word goes forth, God unhardens their heart as it was and draws them to himself. If they're not elect, then the word of God hardens their heart. So when we say, and how often do we say as a church, we know that your word goes forth and will accomplish all of your purpose. 
We always think that means God's going to save people. No. It also means that the Word of God is going to harden hearts. That's God's purpose too at times. Do we like that? No, I don't like that. But God is who He is. And God said, this is what I do. And who are we to argue with God? Be glad that He's called you. And be glad that the gospel call for us is to whosoever will. Let us take whosoever will, mean whosoever will. Let God deal with whosoever will the way God wants to deal with it. We're told to tell everybody. Tell everybody, because I have no idea who the elect are, and neither do you. And therefore, go and share the gospel. Let them know that they're temporary aliens here, and they'll stand before a holy God. And what will they do in that day when they stand before God? You know, we had the uh, couples last night. And I thought for sure somebody was going to come dressed as Ralph and Alice Cramden. And it just made me think, forgive me, but thinking of stand before God, what are you going to say? Humana, 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 humana? Is that what you can say? No. It's either Jesus Christ is Lord to your salvation or it's Jesus Christ is Lord to your damnation. And there is no in-between. Be bold in telling the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. So foreknowledge does not mean God looks down the corridor of time. Foreknowledge means that God foreloved. God loved you before God ever said, as Ephesians told us before the foundation of the world, if you're truly in Christ, God loved you and placed His love upon you before the words, let there be light, were ever spoken. To mean, what does it mean, foreknowledge? I think Thomas Schreiner has it absolutely correct in his commentary. He says, believers are elect because God the Father has set His covenantal affection upon them. Wow. His covenantal affection. Are you under the covenantal affection of God today? He acknowledges that they are elect exiles through the foreknowledge of God. And he also says it's for the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Look at what verse 2 again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. John MacArthur says this, At salvation, the sanctifying work of the Spirit sets believers apart from sin to God, separates them from darkness to light, sets them apart from unbelief to faith, and mercifully separates them from a love of sin and brings them to a love of righteousness. God saved us because He loves us. Not because of anything we've done. Empty-handed I come. As Titus writes this in Titus 3, 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What Peter's giving us here is essentially the order salutis. That's the order of salvation, by the way. If you want to put a theological term in your hat. 
The order of salvation. How is salvation done? God plans it. The Holy Spirit comes and He applies it to our hearts. We are drawn by the Holy Spirit. Jesus accomplishes it. That's the sprinkling of the blood. And for obedience to Jesus Christ, Jesus accomplishes salvation. The Holy Spirit seals our salvation. As Ephesians 2 says, 2.10 says about this obedience to Jesus Christ. He saved us to be sanctified. He saved us so that we would be obedient. And Ephesians 2 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before, and that we should walk in them. Peter is reminding them that their salvation, which is from God alone, is guaranteed to them for all eternity because it was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look again what it says in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and mercy be multiplied to you. The blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It is the blood of Christ which guarantees our forgiveness, guarantees our salvation. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 12, But when Christ had offered for all time, for how, how long? For all time, a single sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of God. You've been with us on Sunday nights. We went through the book of Exodus and Leviticus. Twice a day, a one-year-old lamb had to be slaughtered. That's not counting when you sinned on your own and came and had to make your own sin offering or a peace offering or whatever it was, it was had to be done through blood because without the sprinkling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but Christ once for all with His own blood guarantees our salvation. And so we can say with confidence that He will see us through to the very end. It is this foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the obedience and blood of Jesus Christ, of which grace and peace are multiplied to us. If you leave out any of those, there is no grace and there is no peace. Look again what he says. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why does he say may? Well, it's may because either I believe this or I don't. If I don't believe this, if I don't let it be at the core of my being, even though I make mistakes, even though, not mistakes, even though I've willfully sinned against God, even though I've fallen at times, I can never fall as to be lost. I need to bring myself back to an understanding, as he says, preparing your minds for action. 
I got to really believe that God's grace is what, it, what He says it is, and it will do what He says to do. And while I'm awaiting for the final grace of God to be appeared at the coming of Jesus Christ, in between that time, what does God give me? Peace. Peace. How often do I freak out under stress? I don't know about you, maybe you're normal. I don't think you are. I don't mean that in a bad way. But we all stress out at times. We all freak out at times. We all get lost in the moment. And even then, God will be gracious to us. Community group Friday night, we were thinking about the apostles in the boat. Remember the storm came up? Jesus is asleep. Why is Jesus asleep? Well, because he's Jesus, because he made the storm, so he knew what was going to happen, right? And they're freaking out, and they come, and they wake up, don't you care that we're going to die? You know, Jesus is so gracious. He doesn't say, no, I don't care, and go back to sleep. Because that's probably, if you were Jesus and I were Jesus, that's probably what we would have done. Or actually, if I was Jesus, I would make the storm worse. Right? That's probably what we, I, I would do. Right? If I was Jesus, thanks be to God, I'm not Jesus. There's only one Jesus. But think about, even in that, that moment when they were freaking out, Jesus said, you know what? You don't have any faith. He gently rebuked them. But then what did Jesus do? Immediately! They were at the shore. Immediately, he brought peace to them. He didn't let them go through the storm. He let the storm have no effect on them after that point. Once they acknowledged it had an effect and they sought the help of God, as wrong as it was, he gave them peace. Isn't that a great picture of God? You know what? You have no faith. Let me bring you over here. And why did he do that? So he could increase their faith. So he could increase their faith. What a great God we serve. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is what God says to us. And God gives us the power and the strength to have grace and peace be multiplied to us. Peter writes this in chapter, chapter 2, and we'll close with this the core of the book, if you ask me. And this is how we are to view our lives. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may reclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is what God has called us to. 
In this world, we'll have troubles. In this world, we'll have sufferings. But when those troubles come and the suffering happens, right alongside it, actually has always been there, is the grace of God, which brings us the peace of God, which gives us the security of God, that He will see us through to the end. Let's be ones who live as sojourners and exiles to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have done it all. Salvation is a work of the Lord. For salvation is found in no other name. There is no other name given amongst men by which you may be saved except that of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to learn how to cherish what it means to be elect of God, the hope, the security, the grace and the peace which is ours. We ask your help through the Spirit in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's close in a song.
Amen. Praise his name. God bless you all.